A reading from Habakkuk, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The oracle that the prophet Hakabah saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law becomes slack and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, judgment comes forth perverted. I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me and what he will answer concerning my complaint. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that a runner may read it. For there is still the vision for the appointed time. It speaks of the end and does not lie. If it seems to tarry, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Look at the proud. Their spirit is not right in them, but the righteous live by their faith. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is a reading from Thessalonians. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We must, also, we must always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith during all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. To this end, we always pray for you, asking that our God will make you worthy of his call and will fulfill by his power every good resolve and work of faith, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him, because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, He has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. And then Jesus said to him, Today, Salvation has come to this house because he too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek out and save the lost. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. 
Please be seated. You really can't help when I hear this story but to remember that song I learned in Sunday school with the flannel board. Does anybody know this song? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. You're not missing anything if you don't know it. Um, it'd be much worse if I sang it to you, by the way, uh, so I won't. But, you know, um, we often have this idea, I think largely because of that song, actually, that um, Zacchaeus was just a very short man, and for this reason, he, he couldn't see Jesus coming by, as it were, on sort of a parade. Uh, so he, he ran ahead and climbed a tree. And, and, you know, maybe that's not such a bad understanding of the story because it sort of implies that when we want to see Jesus, when we want to see God embodied, um, God will make that okay. Now, you, the part we've got to consider there, right, is that he does have to climb a tree to do this, and this is a time when people wear garments much more like this than, say, pants, and, um, well, undergarments weren't really then what they are now. So he does this really at, at the risk of exposure, as it were, and, and in the end, yeah, I, I, you know, normally we're word people, and pe- okay, whatever, no, um, in the end, in the end, um, Zacchaeus sort of sacrifices his communal honor for this view of Jesus, right? That, that's probably not bad. I do want to go somewhere different with the story, though, if I might, and, and, and maybe we'll end up in the same place, I don't know. Um, where I want us to consider today is a little bit about um, reconciliation because I was just at clergy conference at Camp Allen and, and, and we spent two or three hours talking about reconciliation and um, it seems like a good story to, to inflict that back upon you. Um, the story starts with Zacchaeus being a tax collector and as I told you last week, that's a loaded symbol. Tax collectors are not IRS agents. They're really bad people. Uh, the coins had the picture of the emperor, so it was idolatry to deal with coins. So they're blasphemers. They touch unholy things all day long, money. Um, also, they're serving the Roman Empire, which is dominating the Jewish government. Basically, these people have invaded us, and tax collectors are working for the enemy. So they're traitors, too. But tax collectors are also cheats because they will take whatever they can get from you and they have Brutus and Hans and Franz to enforce that. So they're not charging the real bill, they're charging what they can get. So, so this, is, this is really the trifecta, right? Zacchaeus is a blasphemer, he's a traitor, and he's a thief, and he's the chief tax collector. So. Think about that not just literally, but figuratively. He's not a good guy. And he's very rich, which sort of goes without saying. Well, Jesus is coming to visit this place. And all along the parade route, I mean, I'm imagining, we don't really know. We always have to kind of fill in the gaps. He's come to town, and people are probably saying, Jesus, here in the town is this blaspheming thief, traitor Zacchaeus. Avoid him, whatever. That guy's a dirtbag, Jesus. I mean, all along the route. But for whatever reason, Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus. We don't know what he's expecting, but we do know he's short in stature, and you know that might be a figurative description. It may be, but the townspeople will not let him see Jesus because of his short 
professional stature. And the only way he can get a view of Jesus is to climb up a tree. Okay, so now comes the five points of reconciliation. I won't bore, them, bore you with them, but I'll go through them real, real briefly here. The first one is remembering the wrong that's been committed, but remembering it accurately. This is really important because, you know, a lot of times when we remember wrongs, we remember all the emotional damage that, that we've accrued over the years stewing about it, and we make it into a much bigger event and an unrecoverable one than it might have been otherwise. So, so remembering the truth. Then second, says Miroslav Wolf, this is the guy talking to us at clergy conference, is forgiveness. Forgiveness comes after memory. And forgiveness, this is interesting, is really, it's a two-sided game because you know at its base, and you can look in the dictionary, forgiveness means, according to Merriam-Webster, to stop being hurt by somebody. But that is not me giving you anything. That's a gift I give to myself, that you don't hurt me anymore. No, really this bigger vision of forgiveness is that I offer forgiveness to you and then you receive it. So it's a two-part thing, right? So really I want you to think that it's not just that I'm no longer bothered by you, but forgiveness, I think as God imagines it, is when I'm open to a future with you. If you never receive that, there won't be one, right? But, it, but if you do, then that might bring us to this third place, which is repentance. Now, this might seem like a confusing sequence because aren't we supposed to repent and then be forgiven? You could look at our service, right, where we do the confession and then you get the absolution and say, look, Mike, every Sunday we come here and we repent first and then we be, get forgiven. But I, I do want to actually turn that upside down. The truth is... You're going to get the absolution. You know that. Have you ever been to a church and done a confession and the priest was like, no, I am not absolving you. You are dirty people. Come back next week. (laughs) You know the absolution is coming. You know it will come. And maybe that's actually why you can confess because you know you'll be forgiven. And maybe that's the way this sort of works is that when we we can expect that that the the party's going to create a new future with us, then it allows us. You ever worried that you couldn't give an apology big enough? Or there were certain people you just could never, you could just never make it right with them no matter what you did, no matter how much you debased yourself. They would not accept your confession. So you didn't give it. In some ways, I think this might be what's play here, right? So, so there's this repentance, which is that other side. The fourth thing that, um, is, is to repair. Reparations. That's, a, that's a, kind of a scary word, but repair. And the fifth one is to embrace. Embrace a new future together, right? Because as we know, um, reparations... It's okay to have a brief confession with you. There's times, you know, where with my kids where they may have done the same thing a few times, and they'll say, Dad, I'm really sorry. And sometimes I say, well, if you were really sorry, you wouldn't keep doing that, <laughs> which is not really great. And that's that whole idea, right, that there's got to be these reparations, and we've got to take that seriously, but, but at a certain point, again, no one's going to confess when that's what they get back, because it's not safe. Um, so let's look at the story and see if you can find these things. The memory actually doesn't come first, except maybe on the journey Jesus is being told what a crook this guy is. 
Jesus does this very interesting thing because he sees this guy up in a tree in his dress and he says to him, I'm staying with you. That's kind of like the forgiveness piece first. Jesus is open to a future with a man whose reputation he's possibly been heard, uh, been told to be very poor. And Zacchaeus says, great, I'll welcome you into my house. Now, this may seem very unsouthern that I'll say to you, you know, um, hey, it's great to be in your town. I'll be coming to your house for lunch and get a room ready for me in case I choose to spend the night. That, that may not come across as friendly, but it is the Middle Eastern hospitality way of doing this that you, frankly, people are fighting each other to host a visitor. So it's a special honor Jesus is giving this guy by staying with him. It would be like me saying, you know, I don't know if this one's going to work actually. The bishop is coming next week and he needs to stay at somebody's house, right? And I'm just imagining everybody jockeying to be the one to host the bishop or not, right? I, mean, I don't sort of know which way it goes, but he's a celebrity. This is the thing. So, so Zacchaeus is really happy to have him and that's when the grumbling starts. The people in town say, Jesus is too important for this dirty guy. It should, be, it should be the chair of the altar guild hosting Jesus. It should be the verger, you know. It should be the choir master. It should not be this guy. This guy starts fires in churches. Why would Jesus go there? I mean, that's sort of the deal. So they remember again, you see, they remember. Zacchaeus is open to Jesus coming, and then he makes reparations, right? And these are pretty big reparations he makes. Half of all I own, I give to the poor now. Done. Half. And if I have defrauded anybody, and you need to read that, I've defrauded lots of people. All those people I've defrauded, I will pay back the principal with 300%. So that would be a total of four times, right? Principal, 300% interest. That would be pretty ruinous to do financially. I mean, one wonders whether he can even absorb that cost. But here he said he'll do that. Repair, right? He's trying to show he's going to do this. And then, and by, and so doing, really, I think what Zacchaeus is saying is that he's, maybe for the first time, instead of opening his hand to the community to collect from them, now he's opening his arms to the community and hoping that they might live together. We don't know if the community accepts it. We don't know. We know Jesus does. And what Jesus says, right, is that today salvation has come to this house. And I don't think he's saying, Zacchaeus, if you die on your way home today, you are going to heaven. I think what he's saying is a lot more significant for right then. You just took an incredible risk in embracing these people as fellow children of God and Abraham. You have just treated people estranged from you, people who are enemies, as members of your common household. And that is salvation. And that is why Jesus came to look out for people who were lost and save them. The problem is that this business of reconciliation is a little bit unfair for people who have been hurt. Think through this with me. You got hurt in the first place, which was not fair. And then 
You're going to forgive somebody? Somebody who hurt you, you're going to forgive them that? Okay. Then you're going to be open to a future with them and they might not accept it or they might hurt you again. It's pretty difficult stuff, don't you think? See, and that's where I think forgiveness, as Anne Lamott calls it, giving up all hope of having had a different past. But I just think that's, that's really mostly about me. That's really about me living in peace. You know, forgiveness that we often settle on is just that I'm not going to be hurt by you anymore. So really, I'd rather not see you. No more Christmas cards, please. You're unfriended on Facebook. You're unfriended. I mean, I've, I've blocked you on my cell phone in case you have the gall to call me, as if you would anyway, right? This living in isolation from other people is usually the forgiveness that we settle for. But it's not the forgiveness that Jesus calls salvation. I know it's not fair, and I understand that we can't always do it. I'm pretty sure God understands that too. But I'm also pretty sure that this kind of reconciliation, this openness to a new future, is what God imagines for the world. Now, don't get me wrong. There's people, right, when we're talking about systems of abuse, Jesus is not saying go back and get beat up again. He is not saying that, far from it, right? There's no way God has pleasure in that suffering. I think that we can be open to people even if we live separately from them. You know, this is where it has to be teased out carefully. And one of the best things about being an Episcopalian, honestly, is that we're invited to bring not only scripture but reason and tradition to the table as well. We've got to think about what's reasonable. But we can't also forget about what's life-giving. You see, the way of Jesus, right, is not, it's not an easy one. I mean, the guy suffered some. And yet, in the middle of his suffering, he trusted God's way and he trusted that God could bring about greater life. After all, Habakkuk reading says that in the middle of a shifting world, the righteous will live by faith, right? The righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by trust. And you know, there seems to me something fundamental about the way Jesus trusts Zacchaeus, but also the way that Jesus trusts God, that really we're being called to emulate here. That God is able to bring about new life, even if it's really difficult for us to see that and do it. And, and I think there's got to be some difference here when, we, when we, we think about this call to being reconciled to suffering for the sake of suffering and suffering for the sake of bringing new life. Right? So if you're suffering to suffer, stop it. If you're suffering because someone's going to get a, a new life, probably you should continue that, being nourished by God's grace, being nourished by the Eucharist, being nourished by your faith community, because that's the dream God has, right? And so in certain ways, just imagine this trust that instead of us being in, in God like a bunch of water, trying to paddle to catch our breath, that part of trust is us relaxing and floating and trusting in God. And you know, if you've ever taught a child how to, how to float on their back, it's really difficult. It's counterintuitive. And if you ever do it in the ocean, even as an adult, sometimes the waves go over your mouth. It's not always pleasant. But it's a lot better than thrashing. 
And I think there's this question of trust. And you know, the part of the reason I think it's important to bring this up because, you know, we're two weeks away from what I think is probably the most divisive presidential election in, in my life. Not that I'm that old, but it's pretty divisive. And I think we've made this confusing decision that politics is everything and it's not. Politics touch a lot of things and our vote is really important because we're voting, we're voting for our values as best as we can given our choices. But you know there's something about this election year that I think begs us to think about reconciliation because there are many of us, frankly, um, who are lured into this idea that politics are everything and that if you vote on the other side of the ticket from me, not only are you wrong, but there's something, there's something wrong with you. That's part of the speech that's coming out. This is why most people, I think, are not putting signs in their yard. Have you noticed the dearth of political signs in yards this year? There are some who are brave enough to put one out there, and, and I've even witnessed in my own neighborhood that some of the people take those signs down on behalf of the person who put them up, I suppose. It's very bizarre. Um, and that's, that's kind of, kind of bold and, and, and galling in some ways, isn't it? And I'm worried that, 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 that this opportunity we have to exercise our values and respect might create this huge national fracture. And, and where's the embrace going to be? You know, you know, how can we have people who say if the election goes one way, I won't accept it? I mean, how can we do that before it's even happened? How can we create... A, a, a space for each other where, where there can be an, an embrace as a country. And I, and I say this not just to, to chide us here, but you know, this is representative of what happens on a daily basis. And, and this reconciliation story is also representative of what happens on a daily basis in your homes and at your work. There are those people, right? Who maybe it's just easier to grit your teeth and pretend like they didn't really hurt you when they did, they really hurt you. Because if you let them know that, they might hurt you more. I, I, and I don't know that even though I've given you these sort of five steps that I was given at clergy conference, I don't know that they're magic. I don't know that there's a way that you do them that's cookie cutter for every situation, but, but I think I am pretty convinced that this way of living where we seek reconciliation instead of just forgiveness is about the righteous living by faith. And I think we've all had that family member where we thought, I can't, I can't love that person anymore. I can't. It is killing me. It is giving me gray hair. It is, it is giving me stress attacks. But for whatever reason, we did. <laughs> and maybe we didn't love them like we thought we could, but we survived loving them. And I think that's probably an image into reconciliation. We survived loving them, and they knew. They knew we would be there no matter how frazzled they made us. I think the question is, can we make a commitment to that, like that to people who aren't in our family? And I think the real question underneath that one is, what's the quality of our faith? What's the quality of our faith? Do we fundamentally trust that God is able to do this work? Do we fundamentally trust 
that no matter how difficult it is learning to float in that way of life, that it is accomplishable? Do we fundamentally trust that the Eucharist, that baptism, that prayer, that time with one another will give us the nourishment we need, the energy for our spirits and our bodies to do this work because God is in it somehow? And that's where I think this all becomes a stewardship question, you see. This isn't in Habakkuk about, you know, the Texans are great this year, so I'll support them. Next year, uh, I might have to go with the 49ers or somebody like that. This is not about fair-weather fans. This is about where do we fundamentally, fundamentally put our trust? And as stewards of all that God has given us, my prayer is that we live by faith.